Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on PressBox Access. If sports writing had a mayor, it would be Vahe Gregorian. He is as beloved by his peers as anyone in the business. No matter where or when you encounter Vahe, he's always there to support his fellow journalist. Always. He's an empathetic soul, a deep thinker, and he can report and write with the best of them. Fahe's columns make you think and make you feel. You'll understand when you hear his stories on this episode. Vahe, thanks for joining us in our tavern known as Press Box Access. <laughs> Todd, I am thrilled to be with you. It's so great just to have a chance to catch up with you after so long. Uh, we don't see each other enough anymore, but... You're, you're a forever friend, and, and what a delight to get to do this well, with you. Well, my motto is any time with Vahe is time well spent, you know? <laughs> I think uh, one time in New York City, you and I were at the Olympic Media Summit, and we were at Ground Zero, and we started talking and walking, and we kept walking and talking and talking and walking and walking and talking, and next thing you know, we were at Times Square. <laughs> We went from Lower Manhattan to Mid- Midtown. That's a good. <laughs> you know, it, and it occurs to me as you say that um, I've been I've been looking forward to this for a while, but I've been I thought about not only uh, you know the adventures um, each of us has had the opportunity to have in this, but but the adventures we've had together, of course. And I mean, I I think the first picture we ever had taken together is maybe the first picture I ever posted on Facebook. It was uh, one of you and Laurie Shantz and me on the beach in, uh, I'm suddenly forgetting which beach in Sydney. I think it was Manly it was Beach. When, it was Manly Beach. Yes. And it was when when the torch was about to come by. And uh, at, what I remember about that moment was um, our joy in being there. But but I think we all felt kind of emotional seeing the 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 joy of the Australian people. It, it, you had this sense that um, they felt the world coming to them in a way that that generation hadn't known. I remember, I remember seeing tears. Yeah, um, people were, and I, yeah. And I think we posed with, uh, for pictures with, with some of the Australians. And anyway, it's just a, it's a, it's a powerful uh, little microcosm of some of the things we've gotten to do together from ground zero to Australia to, you know, you name it. Yeah, we've been around and uh, never been convicted either. So there you go. <laughs> as far as you know. <laughs> hey, hey, on all seriousness, congratulations are in order. Uh, the U.S. Basketball Writers Association has selected you a member of its 2022 Hall of Fame class. Uh, uh, an honor well-deserved. I'm so happy for you, Vahe. What, what does that mean to you? Uh, I'll tell you what, it, it, I mean, the, 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 the funny way to look at it is it means you've been around a while. Um, 
It made me think of the uh, one of the terms, though, that Norm Stewart used when he went into the College Basketball Hall of Fame about how if you see a turtle up on a fence post, you, you figure it didn't get there by itself. Um, <laughs> and I, I do think of that. But I'll tell you, you know what it took me to? This, this is really true. In some capacities with the Basketball Writers Association, I had uh, I had the opportunity to let a couple people know they were going in and to interview them uh, about their experience. And those a couple of those people were ones that are very either very familiar to you or near and dear to you. Tom Archdeacon, right, uh, right. which led me to get to interview Tom to write about him. Which I mean, think what a gift that was. And I think I was the last person to interview Frank DeFord before he wow. died because wow. Frank Frank was in a funny kind of category. For, the, for a long time, the Basketball Writers Association wasn't um, necessarily recognizing people who weren't in the association, and that was sort of determined to be an oversight. And um, it, so all that, all of which is to say, it, it's it's very nice to stop and pause and kind of have at least your professional life flash before your eyes, which as you know, is more than just your professional life. We, we probably all get a little too entwined with our identities in this work. Mm-hmm. Or if, 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 if I'm saying that not exactly the way I meant it, but I think you understand what I mean. Right. And 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 so it, in some ways it's inseparable and, and really nice just to um, hear from so many peers. Yeah. And that is a lot of the joy of this work, uh, it, as our relationship attests to, but... Also, the fact that you have this podcast with an infinite amount of people that uh, you're getting to talk to that are all interesting. And I think uh, that in itself reveals uh, something special about the the business. Well, Vahe, the fact that you plugged our podcast while you're on our podcast (laughs) says everything there is about you. (laughs) You're always thinking of others. I I raised this idea that you're getting honored. You immediately start talking about other people who are honored. And and hey, in all seriousness, uh, the fact that you're going to be in New Orleans for the Final Four receiving that honor, I couldn't be happier. Um, I unfortunately will not be there. If you uh, if you see my liver anywhere in the streets of the French Quarter, it's from years past. Uh, I will not be there. I will be there in spirit, and and really, spirit is the word I always think of about when I think of you, Vahe, because um, you know, as a Kansas City Star columnist, somebody rightfully said that you're a writer who makes you think and makes you feel, and I think that's that's not easy to do in this day and age you know somebody who has an empathetic spirit and is able to cut through all the clutter and the noise and get to the human nature of the story and um and you're you, you are certainly one who does that so well so i'm very happy for well, you. well let me add one real quick thing there todd just because it really moved me to the depths of my soul i have to admit when uh our friend Shannon Ryan from the basket now president of the basketball writers association called to tell me um she used some terminology like that, and Shannon is somebody I really admire and, and have so enjoyed getting to know. And um, I, I just immediately, I don't know if I burst into tears, but I, I, I just, uh, I was a little shaken up. Um, and it, and, and it, that was uh, such a lovely thing to say, and, and uh, that's all. There's nothing more, I guess, needs to be said about it, but it, it, uh, I was, for once, at a loss for words. Well, it taps into the emotion, right? It's the emotion of uh, what we write about, uh, what we cover, the athletes, the coaches. We sometimes forget they're humans, and you've always been one who's been able to capture that emotion. You mentioned that day at the Sydney Olympics at Manly Beach, and I often think of that too. I mean, I could still see that flame 
off in the distance coming towards us. And as it did, these thousands of people, just the noise, the crescendo of noise, it was like a wave overcoming us. And uh, I think about that. And I also think about those games, about a story that you wrote for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, who you then worked for and worked for 25 years, by the way. Um, There was a wrestler named Sammy Henson, and he was from St. Louis, and he was in the gold gold medal match. He was in the gold medal match at 119 pounds, and he suffered a four to three defeat, which, you know, for an Olympian is just devastating. He lets out this primal scream, and he takes off. Can you tell us about that story that you covered that day in Sydney? Yeah, I, I'm so glad you're asking about that just because I, I think about that story in a lot of different ways. In some ways, I think it's, um, this sounds a little lofty, but part of the, whatever the, we feel like this calling is to try to try to understand and take people where they don't get to go mm-hmm. and but also, I think, be empathetic and, and confront all these things at once as the challenge of, in the job. I, I think that it happens often, and this one sort of sizzled that all together for me. So one little quick piece of background on this before I go to that moment. You know, Todd, the precious thing about covering the Olympics isn't, isn't necessarily getting to see um, – Michael Phelps win eight gold medals for for a lot of us, and I know this was true for you, and certainly for me. The 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 thing that's most moving about the Olympics often is what you take in on the ground there, but also the chance to cover your local athletes, right? The the people that you've gotten to know that are looking to talk to you, want to talk to you because you've cared about them, paid attention to them, written about them, know their families over the years, and. Sammy's a great example of that, and, and the sort of thing that I, I fear gets lost as, as the changing of the guard and how the business uh, is unfurling, it, I, I think that kind of thing is less valued today, but I digress. Um, Sammy grew up in the St. Charles area of St. Louis, and I'd gotten to know him a little bit over the years, but as it led up to the Olympics and we knew he was going to have a, a great chance to medal, I went and spent a day and a half or so with him in Oklahoma. That was a great commitment by the Post-Dispatch. You know, it's, mm. uh, you know, go go send somebody down there for a couple of days. But that led to a feeling um, of trust between Sammy and me that, that I, you, you wouldn't have otherwise, right, if you're right. just somebody that shows up there. So long story short, you described it well. I, I, the, the, the match ends, and Sammy is in a frenzy, I mean, you know, he is he is overcome with he's in despair. I think that's the word I used in my lead that he was, he was in panic and despair, and he runs off off the mat into the stands, screaming, tearing the top of his singlet down. Now, it sounds like a spectacle, but it was truly horrifying. I mean, what you saw before you was what felt like somebody broken and shattered is a better word, I guess, and now. What do you do as a journalist? I mean, you don't want to be an ambulance chaser. On the other hand, I, I'm there to document what happens with Sammy. I mean, that's, that's, he's my local. That's the main reason right. I'm there. He's your local, right? Yeah. So a few of us, I think it was Jack McCallum from Sports Illustrated, and I don't remember who else, um, 
sort of tried to gently follow Sammy's path and find him in the fetal position in a hallway weeping. And one of his coaches had to pick him up and carry him back out of view. And, you know, I think everyone standing there, there were many of us, maybe four or five of us, was, you know, feeling this strange uh, (laughs) straddling of, you know, shame and what do I do? Like, I'm watching this. What... What do, what do I do with this? Um, so hours pass and, it, you know, others just at that point have to move on to other stories. But again, he's my local and I obviously understand there's something very deep and profound in this. But I also know that he, he's he's not ready to talk. So I waited like three hours for him to come out and he, he came out and he said he couldn't talk. And at that point, I'm like, I don't know what to do, but I respect it and I understand it. And he told me, he called me in my hotel room uh, in a little while. So now it's, you know, the pace of these things. But luckily, we've got a little buffer on the time zone from Sydney. Um, we've already missed the Saturday paper, I think is how it was. So, right. so yeah, now I'm right. in the next cycle. And um, so <laughs> long, try to simmer down this long story. But so I get Sammy on the phone and he this is five hours after the match. He's still in his um, singlet, and he's uh, he's he's just opening up about everything. How he how he threw the gold threw the silver medal down. He didn't want it, and you know we just talked about everything. He was very emotional, and uh, so I ended up writing it, and I wrote it rather personally. Um, and I bring that up because that was not everybody's cup of tea. I, I heard from people who were furious that thought I had uh, betrayed him by being, you know, so direct about what he had gone through. Right, right. And I, I you know, that that, that doesn't um, just roll off your shoulders. I mean, you're, you're trying to think this through. On the other hand, I felt like I, I was true to the story he was telling me. And anyway, just to finally bring us in for a landing, um, I heard from him uh, a few hours later, which is hard to believe. Uh, in the, even I guess even in 2000, you know that the the Jurassic days of the internet, we we were we were seeing this stuff. Um, and he told me he thanked me so much because he said he felt like somebody understood. Wow. And I. I mean, that's, that sends chills through me. And you know the complication of this. I mean, it, it, you have to be thinking about writing for your audience as, as, and you have to be considerate of the people you're writing about. On the other hand, you're writing the story. You can't be just thinking about them in the story. There's so many things going on in our heads. And I don't mean to make it sound like rocket science, but it, it, there are a lot of different things, plates to spin and, and things to consider as you do these things. But I suppose I, I felt like it was okay for me to hear him say that, <laughs> you know, yeah. that, that and it was more than okay. It was um, probably uh, I, just a huge reassurance that I hadn't violated him when writing about something so meaningful. It's a, well, it's a fine line. It's a fine line you have to, uh, to walk down. And, and the fact that he was... Willing to talk to you uh, shows the trust that you built up with him beforehand, and he trusted that you would handle it 
in a way that was true to the story, and then he thanks you for it. And I got to tell you, I went back this morning and reread that story. I have it in the Best of American Sports Writing Collection, and I reread it just to reconnect with that type of emotion. And, um, you know, that story was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize, and it's, uh, you know, I mean, that says a lot right there, right? But what I really think it says is it says that you captured the moment when a human was in despair and handled it very graciously. Well, thank you. And, and really, of, of all the things you could, it's funny because you say there's a fine line and all this thing, all these things, but I suppose um, that might be the, the best feeling of all to feel like you, you, you cared about another person in such a way um, that you could represent their story properly, even for all its sort of warts and, and thorns. I mean, that, that I, I think, right. look, I, I, I don't know, Todd, what the, the whole, um, the whole mission is exactly in this line of work. I mean, we, you know, we're in journalism, but we're in a little subset. And now once you become a columnist, that's a little different too. But I do think, uh, if you can feel like you're somehow speaking to whatever you want to call it, the human condition, the human spirit, that that's a pretty good motivator for the work for me. I mean, I, I, it, it, I think if you're able to make people feel, and that's, that's a big, that's a big challenge. I don't know if, if you know, it's a lot of times you try to make people feel, and maybe you don't, mm-hmm. but if you're able to do that, I, I feel like that's, quite a lot more important than just pontificating or, or, you know, telling it like it is, so to speak. I'm doing air right. quotes around that. <laughs> exactly. Right. But I think that's the mission in some cases. And I, I don't want to say that people are wrong that view it that way. I just think that's, we, we do all need to gravitate to uh, what moves us and our own, I think our own personalities or, or what are you doing this for? Right. Well, it's certainly, um, moved a lot of people. You put people in that moment and captured that moment for a person. And you've also done that in basketball arenas around the country. I mean, you've covered, what, 21 Final Fours? I mean, I think 22, 21. And and in your 25 years at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch before you went to Kansas City, you covered a lot of college sports, a lot of college basketball. And when I think about what you had to write about, it was Kansas, Missouri, right? <laughs> that was the rivalry. Yeah, yeah. It, it, listen, it, it, that's a it's a great, great rivalry. And I, it is funny. We always feel the need to compare these things, um, and I think they're not really com- comparable. A lot of times, I mean, I, I think we understand that um, Louisville, Kentucky, mm-hmm. is its own thing. Duke, Carolina, is its own thing. Each thing is sort of about its own audience, exactly, and its its own context. And Missouri, Kansas has has you know sort of roots and history and entanglements that are are different. Um, and, and I should just say different. I, I I wouldn't presume to say that rivalry is better per se. I just don't. I, it, those things really are apples and oranges, but it's it's special. Well, well, it pre it, think about this. It predates college sports itself. Yeah, and that, that is that's the, that's the thing. And here, you know, we live in a city um, that you know people pay attention to the fact which which side of state line road you're on, um, hmm. and you know 
there's some sort of legendary uh, stuff that may or may not be true. I'll, I mean, one example is that how Norm Stewart always fed into the rivalry with such uh, statements as, you know, that he'll never spend money in Kansas, et cetera. Well, <laughs> toward the end of Norm Stewart's career, uh, actually, well after Norm Stewart's career is when Missouri went to the SEC and the rivalry was sort of gone for the moment. I did a piece on uh, the end of the rivalry and I got Norm on the phone and, and uh, for some reason, I can't remember how, how it came up. I think I said, so you, so you really never spent money in Kansas? And he goes, oh no, I just made that up. Um, <laughs> it, it, it played well and I just kept saying it. And in fact, Norm's, Norm's wife grew up uh, in Kansas, and his son lives lives really? in the house she grew up in. Yeah, so <laughs> a lot of a lot of theater uh, in, involved in that, but but that's kind of what makes it fun too. Well, Norm was the longtime Missouri coach. I think from '67 to 1999, you had over on the Kansas side. You were dealing with Roy Williams for many years, and Bill Self since 2003. You've you've witnessed a lot of those games. Um, is there one that stands out, or a moment that stands out uh, to you when you think about Kansas, Missouri? Well, a lot of a lot of amazing moments. Maybe the bookend of it is is what comes to mind for me. Um, The first Missouri-Kansas game I ever went to was, I think it was 1989, in Allen Fieldhouse, and it was number one versus number two. Wow. It might have been 90. I think it was 89. And I I could not believe the the wonderland I was walking into. I mean, it was unbelievable and and intoxicating, really. And um, What what was it like for somebody who's never been in Allen Fieldhouse? What was that like? Yeah, it's a, that's a great way to ask, too. I mean, it's important to say that. And so, it, you know, it was sort of sense around the sense of everything around you was was uh, crackling. And the, the, the constant roar of the crowd, I mean, there's, you know, you've been in these different environments where there's, there's something always sort of percolating, bubbling, a noise that's it's it's not um, it's not background, but it's just mm-hmm. always there. And then, of course, with its peaks, and then with things like you know, at that point, it was quite a novelty to have uh, ESPN um, with its uh, game day or whatever the the right term was for it uh, on site. First time I'd ever seen it, and and here's. Uh, as a, a, a young writer stepping into this, I'm, I'm walking down on the court and, you know, there's Dick Vitale next to me talking to somebody. And I just, it, it just was a, a, a smorgasbord of the senses. I, I'm reaching for mm-hmm. words, but, and, and, you know, the arena itself makes that. Right? I mean, there's something that uh, only a few arenas can really conjure in you just because of the history. You can practically feel, you know, sweating out of the building and, and, yeah, um, I mean, it was what? I think it was built in 19, or opened in 1955. Yeah, right in the mid... Holds about 16,000. Yeah, so. right in the mid-50s, and, a, and you know, bleachers, and, and people are, you know, in a sense, people are all just pressed up against each other, right? And, and, and that's, and, and they're sardined in, so it's... It's like a punk rock concert, right? <laughs> With basketball in the middle of it. Yeah, might, might as well have been. And um, one thing, so this this is just a quick aside, but... You know, my parents, uh, they didn't exactly relate to the work, but they took a sweet and special interest in it. And at one point, I, I kept trying to explain to them how how consuming a lot of these things were. 
and they they decided they want to come out from Missouri Kansas game. Um, oh wow! And so it was in Columbia, and I still remember after after the game seeing how red my mom's face was from the excitement <laughs> and the noise and all that. She was she was overwhelmed. I don't know if she loved it, but she was overwhelmed. <laughs> and um, and then the, kind of when I say the bookend, the other thing is that the last two games of the rivalry as we knew it um, in that in that final season before Missouri left for the SEC were two of the best basketball games you'll ever see on uh, back and forth on each court. And you know the, the, we did a big project at the Star uh, on it uh, recently with the, sort of an oral history of all that. And and you know. The, Todd, you know this, it, it, to just pick it up and put it into any different rivalry, the characters involved. Uh, it, and that also comes from a day where, uh, you know, we knew people a little better than we might now, right? Especially in, in mm-hmm, COVID. Right. But I mean, that, that's a day when, you know, the writers were, uh, you know, we knew all the coaches at the other schools in ways we don't know now. I mean, I still mm-hmm. remember. You knew the backstories, right? Yeah, I yeah. knew their backstories, but, you know, you. It, it was important for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch to go sit down with Roy Williams at Kansas um, and visit with him about who he was or write about things from the KU perspective, even from the other, you know, for the St. Louis audience. And um, so, Roy, I remember, you know, get, being fortunate to get to know Roy and, and how quaint this is. I remember him calling me back from pay phones at his, you know, his son's high school games. Uh, you know, wow. just it, and I say that it's really nothing about like, oh, I knew Roy so well. I don't mean that. I, I did know Roy in a, in a way I really enjoyed. But but that was what Roy did with with, you know, exactly. media he got right. to know. And and, you know, these days uh, there aren't too many people that are as as I don't know, accessible as that. I mean, Bill Self really is. Uh, he's a bit of a throwback, too. Um, Mm-hmm. But there, anyway, there's a lot of colorful people around all this, and and it it, it certainly keeps you uh, it keeps you you know uh, uh, energized. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, I think about, you know, being in Allen Fieldhouse in that cauldron of noise and and heat and and emotion and um, and you think about those years. You, you did twenty five years at St. Louis Post Dispatch, and and then you moved to Kansas City in two thousand thirteen to become the columnist, where you're still writing as a columnist. I mean, St. Louis is a pro town, but you're you're in a different city, uh, Kansas City, where you're starting to get to know some of the icons of that city. People like Tom Watson, George Brett. Uh, how's that transition as? for a writer to go from these big giant moment, moments and games and scenes to getting to know an individual like a Kansas City icon like Tom Watson? The thing that's, uh, all of us encounter this all the time in the work is, you know, how to, how to build a new relationship or how do you get right. to know somebody? And, you know, a little daunting to try to get to know a George Brett or Tom Watson, I suppose, from the outside looking in. But uh, on the other hand, after all this time, I think you, you come to realize that once you can get face to face with somebody, uh, it, 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 it 
they're not that giant the same way right. that you might see them um, from the outside. I, not, I'm not diminishing the status of any of these people. I don't mean that. I just mean you realize they are people. I, exactly. I, I don't, right. I don't right. know if this is true for you, but, I, but I'll say this. The, the times I've struggled most with, like, whoa, I, I'm not sure if I can talk to him or her, isn't when it's somebody that's of such stature now, it's somebody that was exactly, perhaps a childhood right, hero. Right. Well, you know, that's it's funny tough. you mentioned Watson, you know, and I grew up watching golf as a child, and he was he was the guy. He was battling Nicholas, and, you know, and so I remember being a young writer, and I was working in Cincinnati, and I got sent up to Columbus for the Memorial Tournament, which is Nicholas's tournament, PGA Tour, and I... I arranged to have breakfast with Watson. So, you know, I, I'm a little nervous the night before. I'm trying to do all my prep work. I'm trying to get all my security blankets in line, you know, to show that I'm prepared. And I meet him the next morning, and uh, he stopped early on. And one of the questions I asked and said, well, you really did your homework, or you're very prepared. And that kind of eased my tension. And then what really eased my tension was he was answering a question while he was eating, and a grape flew out of his mouth. <laughs> and landed on my plate. And we both looked at each other, and he just went, sorry. <laughs> so at that moment, at that moment, he wasn't what, uh, Tom Watson, this Hall of Fame golfer. Yeah. He was just another guy whose grape flew out of his mouth and landed on my plate. And you're right. They are people. They are human. <laughs> That that'll go a long way towards demystifying <laughs> <Yeah>. somebody. Um, <laughs> that's, um, it's and you know my experience with Tom was a little bit like yours. I I it, it, I, I went up. I actually first met him uh, up in Nebraska uh, at a at an event up there, and I I called his office a day or two before just to see if it's possible to arrange time with him and. Uh, no sooner did he come off the podium. You know, we didn't get breakfast. I didn't have a chance to get a grape shot at me, but um, <laughs> we 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 just sat down over on the side, and and I, I thought he'd give me you know two or three minutes, and it was I don't, it wasn't an hour, but it was it was a good twenty minutes, and in one of those twenty minutes where it's like okay, you got everything you need. I mean, he was very cordial that way, and 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 helpful, and. Um, it, it was a really fun story to write, and, and I, you know, certainly I've had a chance to spend uh, maybe a half dozen times with, with Tom in his office now, covered his last Masters, and um, really a, a neat a, a neat thing to get to do. I mean, certainly on the, whatever we consider the Mount Rushmore of Kansas City, Kansas City sports figures, uh, Tom and, and, and George Brett are certainly two of them. Um, Maybe you have to do one from 50 years ago or another more modern one. I, I don't know. We, we don't need to debate that now. But but it's been nice to spend some time with both of them. And, yeah, and, they, um, and, and they George both, is sure a lot of know, fun. They've both suffered uh, the human loss of, of a friend from AOS, you know, so they have this bond that you wouldn't think that, again, they're, they're these icons in sports, but you don't think that they have their own personal issues or ups and downs. And here they are with uh, Watson losing his caddy, Bruce Edwards, and I know George Brett lost a friend to AOS, and th those two guys have worked together to try to help help uh, with an AOS cure, right? They have, and it's really uh, alert of you to know that, and um, I... I and, and surely reflects uh, either knowledge or preparation. I, I, I'm, I'm so glad you know that because they're, they're, they join together at an at event every year and 
we're pretty faithful about going to that event. The legendary star um, sports columnist and later editor Joe McGuff mm-hmm. uh, died from ALS, and his name's been attached to this for a long time. Um, and so Tom and, and George always have something interesting and compelling to say, and, and our friends at the ALS uh, Society or Association are, are always providing important information to get out there every year. Um, you know, this is a, a twist on this, but I, I wrote about this a few years ago. It, it turns out that Lou Gehrig played his last baseball game in Kansas City. Is that right? Because he had been suffering from some conditions he couldn't, you know, they, they weren't able to determine. And huh. the Yankees had a farm team here, the Kansas City Blues. Hmm. And in 1939, they played an exhibition game here. And Gehrig kept feeling increasingly weak. He just batted once. He got a train, got on a train from Union Station here up to the Mayo, Minnesota and the Mayo Clinic. And um, next thing you know, there's the diagnosis. Wow. I never knew. So, I never, never knew he had that tie with Kansas City in that regard. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Just a just a, a little little twist. Well, again, you know, you think of these iconic names in sports, and you see them, you know, do what they do so well on the field or on a court. And you don't think of them behind the scenes. And I think as a writer, trying to get them to know them behind the scenes helps contextualize the way you present them to an audience. At the same time, it also is difficult because it could be somebody, like you said, that you grow up with. And I wanted to ask you about a a person in that regard, and that's the late Gail Sayers. Um, I know in, you know, Gail passed away. In 2020, at the age of 77, the Chicago Bears Hall of Fame running back. And you wrote a column a few years prior to that in March of 2017, which kind of, you know, broke the news about the fact that he was dealing with dementia. And I wanted to to hear from you about the day that you went to Gail's house and spent seven hours with him and his wife, Artie. Yeah, well, you're, you're... I really like how you connected that point, Todd, because I, I'm a little older than you, but I'm sure for you, uh, a lot of your first impressions of Gail Sayers were like a lot of us from Brian Song. Exactly, right. And, you know, because his career was kind of cut short, uh, those of us of a certain age, I think, have that aspect of him seared into us more than what an incredible player he was, just because that's, that's how we came to know mm-hmm. him. Um so, Gail, I had written something the fall before that mentioned that a, a Chiefs player, Tyree Kill, had uh, accomplished a couple records that hadn't been reached since Gail Sayers or maybe even surpassed them. And that led to a, a, a friend of mine, a longtime uh, former KU sports information uh, director, Jeff Bowling, saying, hey, you know, Gail, you might want to check into Gail Sayers and, and uh, see how he's doing. I, I think Jeff Jeff had some understanding of the situation. And long story short, Gail was to be in, uh, honored uh, at a banquet in Topeka um, as a Kansas Man of the Year or something, which is it was you know a little a little overdue. As, as a little but bit, I mean, he I, missed the mark on that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nonetheless, I went and. Um, in the first moments of meeting Gail, uh, you, you, you certainly wouldn't have would have thought there was anything um, amiss, but you could tell that he, uh, he he wearied fast. And I ended up sitting at a table with him, and I, I, as time went on uh, during the banquet, 
I, I, I certainly had the sense he was a little disoriented and required a lot of attention. And But what was really jarring was that Brian, that KU put on a great film of highlights of his career and it included some Brian song uh, moments. Yeah, and, by the way, that the, that's the movie about his friendship with Brian Piccolo, who died of cancer yeah. while they were teammates. And again, of a certain generation, it's a movie that, you know, we immediately have emotion about, so... Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you clarified that. Um, and so this movie that, that uh, is, is a lot of how we all remember him or look at him is playing, and it becomes clear to me that Gail does not know what he's watching. Oh, wow. And I just, I just, uh, I just wanted to weep. It was, it was just so strange. And mm. so somehow or another, it, I, I came to think that there had been um, a lot of people had a little sense of this, but that um, people didn't really know what was up with Gail. And I, 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 I came to think that it might be important for the family for people to know what's, what's, what's happening with Gail instead of sort of just, oh, you know, he's not himself mm-hmm. or you know, things like that. And, so I met his wife that night, and, and we kept up a little bit of a dialogue, but I, I think she was not altogether sure she wanted to, to, to put the spotlight on this. Right. And then just this oddity that I, I had to go to uh, Dayton for an NCAA tournament game, and I just thought I should check in with her that I'm kind of in the neighborhood, and, I mean, neighborhood three hours away, but... It, um, if it yeah, were, they lived in Indiana, right? The, yeah, in, up up near yeah. Chicago, and I, I, she uh, she said, "Sure, why don't you come up?" And so it was a very emotional day. I, I spent spent all day with them, and and uh, um, I, I was privileged. Really, I really was privileged to get to write about it. And um, I. I I'd say one of certainly one of the most emotional days of my professional life, and I'll never forget it. I, I took some pictures that day, hmm. and we ran a couple with them. I, I wanted to make sure I asked permission from Artie, his wife, about the appropriateness of them because they they did, I think, kind of illustrate um, something more than maybe the words could say about about mm-hmm. his his state. Yeah. So I'm glad you asked about it. I'm glad I did it. I felt like it was uh, actually uh, helpful to the family for people to understand what was what was happening with Gail. But it was it was still unsettling. Why do you, unsettling to why work do on. you think his wife already invited you up? Do you think she wanted the story told? I think I think she did, uh, but I, I think. It became one of those things where she didn't really know whether she wanted to until I was actually in the house. Mm. Yeah. I, I, as I recall, it might well have been that I was there and she might have said, and I'm, I'm, believe me, I'm not saying there was some great charm in play. I think it, the, the point is that as she got talking about it in this context, trying to explain what's become of Gail and who he is, I think she felt more and more momentum about that it could be constructive and, and help oh, others. Right, right. I think, I think that was a really important point for her because I think a lot of people in these situations are in doubt about what to do. Uh, I think also they're stigmatized. And I, th- I think that was a lot of her 
motivation. Right. And, you know, the fact that Gail Sayers' wife trusted you to invite you up is kind of like the story about Sammy Henson. Um, you have to build that trust, and then when that person um, is willing to tell their story, you have to be able to handle it in a way um, that serves the, the greater good. And, um, you know, I think Sayers, the column about Sayers did that because it helps shine a light on a topic that does need more discussion and debate and thought. And, um, you know, some that's a game. Football's a game that takes a physical toll uh, and it can lead to some bad things. But, you know, sometimes things happen in life that you're a journalist and you just get thrown into suddenly. And there's another moment I think of that. And that's in January of 2017 when Jordano Ventura, the great Kansas City Royals pitcher, Young pitcher died at age 25 in a car accident in his native Dominican Republic. And you got on a plane and went down there. And I think you've told me that you think about that a lot. I do think about that a lot. And it, it represents a lot of things at once. Um, the Royals are, are I, I, to me, a little bit of a model organization in terms of how they feel not just connected to the community, but, but actually engage. And this was, to me, a, a very prime example. Giordano Ventura died early on a Sunday morning. And by that afternoon, my, my dear colleague, Sam Mellinger, was, he was in Atlanta. And the Royals general manager happened to be in Atlanta, Dayton Moore. And that, by that afternoon, Sam was over in Dayton's hotel room. Now, I don't know what it's like with in a lot of other towns. I just don't. But I suppose I could count on one hand the amount of franchises that would go through such a thing and have sports columnists from the town in, in their hotel room that afternoon. And at that point, you know, Sam had, I, I, I asked Sam to ask Dayton if it's okay to embed with the team in the Dominican. And Dayton said, absolutely. So I got on a plane the next day and um, went to Santo Domingo. I, I, um, I'd been there before to do a story on Giordano. And, uh, the, the, you know, the next morning at 6 a.m., we got on a bus to ride three hours to, to Las Terrenas. And um, it might have been one of the most important days of work of my life because it, it was such a remote location and there was a fan base really suffering. I mean, this guy was um, very popular and, you know, seemed to have a, a brilliant future in front of him, represented the rise of the Royals, to, you know, from going nowhere to back-to-back -back World Series. And now suddenly he's gone. And uh, I, was, I started tweeting from the bus that morning and tried to be also... You know, you know this complication. Try to be gentle about when to see if you could talk to guys on the bus. I mean, the, the bus was not full. People were spread out. Right. And wanted to, you know, it's a little strange for them to have me and, and uh, our wonderful photographer, John Sleezer, on the bus. On the other hand, these guys knew us. And we could pick some spots where to sort of feel out if somebody wanted to talk and... And, and they did. But the reason I bring up Twitter is pretty soon we realized that a lot of Kansas City was following 
following along. Mm. I mean, you know, any photo or video was being tweeted or retweeted hundreds, if not thousands of times. And there's a lot of reasons we do this job, whether it's the adventure or the emotion or all these things. But if you ask what the duty is, it's to serve your community one way or another. And I, I felt like John and I were in a position to do that in a way we would probably never know before or after again, because there, there were some other media outlets down there, but they weren't embedded. Um, they did, I'm sure they did a great job, but we were sort of in a fortunate position. And um, it, it felt like, it, it felt important to our community. And that's what I, I asked Dayton at the end. I said, Dayton, um, you know, why, why'd you let us come along? I mean, I, 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 this is a pretty intimate and an excruciating day for the organization. And he said, it, 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 Kansas City needs to be here with us. Basically wow. the words yeah. he said. Wow. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I really not, I just don't know many people that think that way. And so. Well, hey, I, yeah. I have seen video of that day and I read your beautiful heart-wrenching column. Um, but it was like 90 degrees and there's hundreds of people on route rooftops and does that stick out of your mind? What was it like to actually be yeah. in that procession? A couple of different things, Todd, were really very powerful. You know, one of the things was we, we went to the funeral or really more of a, it really was a, a funeral, but it was in, I'm in a room in, in my house now. Uh, it, it, it was in a room no bigger than this and with probably 70 people in there with David Ortiz greeting people at the door to console them. And you now we're all crammed in this room and uh, the Royals, he, he left the Royals by then a former player, Gerard Dyson. I just, I'll never forget him just kind of crumpling into Dayton Moore's arms, just, just weeping. Um, and then to see, I, I know I'm talking a lot about Dayton, but he, he, he he's an extraordinary man. And, and there was, there was a moment where he just stepped up and took the hands of Giordano's family and told them what a what an honor it is to mourn with them. And I just remember thinking, I, I I'm not probably not quoting the words exactly right, but it was it was out of body emotional to to see that the way he was saying it and the way he was feeling it. So we, we left from there and, and went over to the baseball field where Giordano had played, and that was more public. And then the walk you're referring to was a good mile, mile and a half, um, with thousands of people walking in the street, and all these people with the Royals walking with them, you know, not getting on the bus. I mean, David Glass, the owner, Dayton, just all of them just, yeah. you know, Ned Jost, so the manager, the players. Yeah, Ned. I mean, it, all these people so hot. And but what struck me was they're just walking among the Dominican people as, as sort of as one. I remember seeing a sign on the side of the road. A woman was holding up a sign that said, "Thank you, Kansas City, for your love and support." Um, and then of course to the to the burial. Anyway, it was it was uh, it was really surreal in a lot of ways. But to see that connection with um, Royals front office, Royals players, just being as one really with the Dominican people, 
that was unforgettable. And it, it, it I think, made a, a great, um, great impact on people who were suffering. Yeah. Like you said, the people of Kansas City, you know, they wanted to be there with you. And you were kind of a representative. That's what a journalist does. A journalist is a conduit and takes the reader or the viewer or takes those people to places that they don't get the privilege to go to. And I say privilege um, in an honorable way because, you know, at a funeral, you're honoring that person and the people that are hurting. And you're there. You're there on the scene. And it takes a lot. It takes a lot as a writer to try to articulate what it's like to be there. And, you know, you did it in such a fashion, that column, the Sayers column, several others that year. I mean, APSC named you the top columnist in the nation for large newspapers because of those type of columns. And uh, and that's what I've always thought about, you know, the emotion that you're able to to get across to people who aren't there. And sometimes that emotion is is great and fun emotion too. I mean, think about it. Kansas City, since you arrived, is <laughs> it's been like title town. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're nothing for years. You show up and all of a sudden they're in two World Series, they're in two Super Bowls. And, <laughs> you know, they got these great, you know, they got these great players. Uh, it's all Vahe, right? <laughs> what, what has it been like to chronicle the great emotion of Kansas City sports in the last decade? It, you know, it's been incredibly fortunate and just what a what a twist on the <laughs> the narrative of three decades, right? Right. But um, I, I'm glad you phrased that and framed that the way you did because it 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 is it's right. Remember the whole theme of the the wide world of sports, uh, you know, the agony of defeat, but also the, the the joy of these things. And again, this is really true. When the Royals went to the World Series in 2014, and when they just when they won the wild card game, which was you know uh, one of the most bizarre and, and remarkable sights you'll ever see, the way they came back, and um, you felt like uh, uh, let me say it this way: that's 2014. I've been here about a year at that point, and getting to write about those things was like having um, a you're getting slingshotted in the fast forward in, in, in the sense of being here, like living here, being connected to something vital to people. Um, it was, you know, I, our, our audience won't see this because we're, we're talking to each other uh, in, a, in a call where we can see each other. Behind me is a, a plate of the, uh, I think the 30 days of the, of the coverage, um, the covers every day. And that was, that was it. What, what, I mean, we do this for a lot of reasons, but that's certainly one of them, right? To get a cover, chronicle a championship run, and suddenly you're going coast to coast to coast um, doing it, and it's uh, you're, you're out of your mind tired, and, and but you're that's compensated for uh, with adrenaline um, and caffeine. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a couple beers. But, but look, those are aren't those the, the times where uh, you know? Think again to Olympics, for instance. I mean, no sleep. Um, you're a little tired, a little frustrated, maybe a little cranky here and there, but ultimately you're just infused with this uh, uh, adrenaline of, I can't believe I'm here and I get to do this. Exactly. And I, I get to talk to these people, um, and try to bring it back home. Well, yeah. I mean, think about it. Like 
even when you're not at the Olympics, just when you're in your town, if it's Kansas City or whatever city you're working in, if that town is enjoying success the way the Chiefs and the Royals have in the last decade, um, it just lifts everybody up. There is something, it's artificial, right, the sense of community, but it's real, too. It's it's a bizarre thing. It's It's games, it's sports, and yet it does mean something more than that when a city can just celebrate, and Lord knows we all need to feel better. And so when you're writing about that, it's like you're getting to spread some joy. Yeah, <laughs> you're yeah. You're like Santa Claus. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, <laughs> you're right. And, you know, really, you just happen to be in occupying the seat where whatever's happening is is what you get to type about. But when, it, when, <laughs> it's, type, when right, it's that, right, right. you know, it's the, 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 that's it. You know, there's a term, I, 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 there's probably other better terms, but one of the ones I think sports uh, sociologists or psychologists use, it's called Burge, Basking in Reflected Glory. And that's what, you know, towns come to feel when these things happen, right? That they're burging. And when you've gone through all these, like the Chiefs are a good example so many just horrific, bizarre playoff losses <laughs> over the year. I mean, games that have nicknames, right? That's right, all you exactly. need to know. Right. <laughs> you know they're always bad losses when they be, they become something known as. <laughs> yeah, the, the no-punt game, the, you know, the, yeah, right. the pass-to-himself game, the, all that stuff. But, but so there is something about the collective, uh, you know, self-image in all this that I don't know how you quantify it exactly, but I, but you know it when you see it. Exactly. Well, you know, that sense of community, um, again, Kansas City was struggling until you showed up, you know. <laughs> uh, all Kansas City needed was Vahe on the scene because everything is made better when Vahe is there. And, uh, <laughs> and I do mean that seriously. Uh, USBWA, the basketball writers, once said that you're considered the ultimate teammate among his colleagues and a role model among his peers, and I couldn't agree more. Everything is better when Vahe's there. I, I think of that night, we're sitting together on Necropolis Hill yes. underneath the lit Parthenon at the conclusion of the uh, Olympics in Athens, Greece in 2004. And you and I are sitting there amidst hundreds of people who are singing, playing guitars. And I think, there can't be a better night. <laughs> than this. It, that was great. And uh, as I recall, uh, Sean Gregory and Jody Berger. Yes. And maybe John Branch was with us before we went up to the Parthenon. I, I, something like that. I, and it was, it was Mexican music. That was what was weird here in the, it, right? There was something, Greece, it, right. it was in Spanish. But the, I'll tell you something, the, for all the joy I felt in that moment, we had such relief I learned a valuable lesson in marriage that night. I, I called my wife later and, and thought she'd be so thrilled for me to describe this scene. And she really wasn't. She was like, I'm stuck back here. I thought she'd appreciate it's been a long slog, you know, with, with my dear friends. And uh, But I'm glad also you mentioned that, Todd, for another reason. I mean, it, this is really so true. Think how, how much different all this work would be if you were just in a silo um, like, okay, I'm carrying my briefcase into the stadium and I don't know anybody. Right. Um, you know, you don't go to dinner or veer outside the lines with, with people like you and Arch and a, a hundred other people we're lucky to know the way we do. Um, that is, I think, a lot of the sustaining um, uh, impact of, of 
it impacts the wrong word, but the sustaining force in in this. I mean, we're lucky to have have that this feeling with each other, and I'm lucky to work with people I feel this way about every day. Uh, it would be pretty empty, even for all the adventures we get, uh, without that that nourishment. Yeah, that camaraderie um, among journalists is what gets you through, and and, and it makes you think about who am I doing this for? I'm doing this for the audience who can't be here, and uh, you've done it as as well as anybody in 35 years. You know, um, last year you mentioned your father, your Vartan, died in April of 2021. He, what a fabulous career he had. President of the Carnegie Corporation and New York Public Library, Brown University, Presidential Medal of Freedom Honor winner, the National Human Presidential Medal. And I was thinking about you because I read all these tributes, including your beautiful eulogy to your father. And there was a comment made by everybody around the world, but one in particular from the former New York City mayor, who said that the passion for your father's public service was matched only by his kindness and compassion for others. And I said, you know what? He could have said that about Fahe. And I really do mean that. I mean, I felt like I had the privilege of knowing, getting to know you over these years. And I think all the readers have gotten to know you. And by getting to know you, they've gotten to know all these coaches and athletes and gone to places that they haven't been able to go to. So I just want to say thank you for that by well you you could hardly say anything more touching and and uh i i really appreciate that especially as i'm thinking about uh we're closing in on the one-year anniversary of my father's death and um you know i know you've had loss in your life and i i've learned from some of that uh, from some of your feelings over the years and i i think this is true for you i i i was able to move into a, a place of appreciation pretty fast. I mean, it's still piercing and you still miss, miss the conversations, but um, I, I think you have uh, much the same sense about Kathleen. Well, thank you, Vi, and thank you so much for joining us on Press Box Access. It's been so much fun to have you share your stories from your career, and I hope to see you again soon. Same here, Todd. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Hoffman, and our audio engineer Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix dissecting the 
the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you after the chequered flag.